Good morning. Well, we have uh, today is a, a switch in the uh, in the cohorts for uh, kids ministry. So there are people sitting here today who have spent the last ten weeks down with the kids, and uh, perhaps in a few minutes we'll wish they were back down there. Um, so let, we want to bring everybody up to speed. We're rolling up on the end of Romans chapter eleven, and uh, that's a B, but I don't think a problem. Okay, good. See you. Thank you. Um, thanks to whoever prayed that the B would leave. It, <clears throat> We're, we're rolling up at the end of Romans chapter 11, which means we're rolling up at the end of 9 through 11, which, as we've been talking about, uh, is probably one of the most difficult sections of all of Scripture to understand. Uh, we have been doing our best, but what, in, in, in many ways, I think it, it helps to realize that, uh, that the chapters kind of boil down a little bit. Chapter 9 of Romans kind of boils down to God, uh, Paul saying that God is not unjust. And chapter 10 boils down to Paul saying that God is not unavailable. And chapter 11 boils down to Paul saying that God is not unfaithful. So God is not unjust, God is not unavailable, and God is not unfaithful. And here at the end of chapter, as we come to the, toward the end of chapter 11, our text today, Paul says, Consider therefore the kindness and severity of God, severity to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they don't persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you are cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And this is extremely confusing if you haven't been reading along. So let me catch us back up and sort of actually going all the way back to the beginning of the book. Let's look at the flow of what Paul is saying that gets him to this point. You'll remember at the beginning, the very beginning of the, of the book of Romans, Paul introduces himself to this church in Rome to whom he's writing. He hasn't actually been there yet. He's hoping to come see them. He says, I'm Paul. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, that gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his flesh was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people, to the obedience of faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, to give basically what's the theme of the whole letter, which is, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, Paul goes on in chapter 3, in verse 9, says, what are we going to conclude? Are we, are we Jews any better off? No, We've already made the charge, Paul says, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all 
under sin. One of the things that Paul does in the first few chapters of the letter is he demonstrates and he makes it clear that both Jews and Gentiles are bound up under sin. Both Jews and Gentiles need to be rescued, need to be delivered. Nobody, Jew or Gentile, is doing okay apart from God's help. And so, moving ahead to verse 19 in chapter 3, he says, Now we know that whatever Torah says, it says to those who are under Torah, i.e. to Jews, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight simply by following Torah. In fact, it's through Torah that we become conscious of sin. But now, Paul says, now God's righteousness, quite apart from Torah, has been revealed. And it's a righteousness to which Torah and the prophets testify. And this righteousness of God's comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. And He did this to demonstrate His own justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice, His righteousness at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So where's boasting? What what does anybody have to brag about to anybody else? Uh, There's nowhere for it. On what principle? On that of following Torah? No. It's just faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing Torah. I mean, is God the God of Jews only? Isn't he the God of Gentiles too? Yes, he's the God of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. We don't nullify Torah by this faith. In fact, as Paul is going to demonstrate through the whole letter, It is, in fact, by this faith that Torah is upheld, that it is fulfilled, that it is developed. We move on in chapter 5. We read Paul saying that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We, Jew and Gentiles, Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We very rarely... Is anybody going to die for a righteous man? For a good man, somebody might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? Not only this, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As we talked about, this reconciliation is not just a matter of us being reconciled to God. This reconciliation has so many dimensions to it. Not only are we reconciled to the God from whom our sin separated us, we're reconciled to our own consciences that are pricked, that may be seared, our own consciences that are wrecked because of our sin. We're reconciled to one another. Jew and Gentile alike are reconciled. We're reconciled in our relationships. We're reconciled in in, in our interactions with God's good creation. This program of reconciliation that God has is not simply a matter of forgiving our sins. If that had been it, that would have been enough. And that would be impressive on its own. But God's mission is one of cosmic reconciliation, of repairing the damage that we did through sin. And so because, moving on to chapter 8, because of what God has done for us in Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now, right now, already no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the life-giving Torah of the Spirit set me free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. What Torah was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And in doing so, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so moving on to chapter 9, We read Paul starting to express some anguish, not the confidence and joy that he was expressing before, but the anguish over the fact that even though this is true, even though Jesus is Israel's Messiah and was sent by God to be this sacrifice, not all of Paul's fellow Jews have accepted him. In fact, most haven't. And so he says in the beginning of chapter 9, I I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I, I, I could even wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I mean, theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of Torah, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. I mean, it's not as though God's word had failed, Paul says, for not all who are of Israel are Israel. I mean, it's not because they're his physical descendants are they all Abraham's children. To the contrary, it is through Isaac, as Torah says, that your offspring will be reckoned. 
In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And Paul here is recalling what he said in chapter 4 about how Abraham, as we talked about last week, Abraham in faith believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness, not after Abraham went through his circumcision, but even before he did. So Abraham then, as Paul says, is the father of all who believe, not just those who are physically descended from him. And so picking this back up at the end of chapter 9, what then shall we say in verse 30, that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a righteousness of Torah hasn't attained it? Oh, why not? After all, they pursued it not by faith. They pursued it as if it were by works. And in doing so, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it's written. Here in Isaiah, I, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. It's an ignorant zeal. And since they didn't know God's righteousness, and since they sought to establish their own righteousness, they sought to establish it apart from God, and they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Because the problem with that is that Messiah is the goal, the climax, the fulfillment of Torah so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You can either go with your own efforts to establish your own righteousness or you can submit to God's righteousness and the way that he is going to make that available. And they, Paul says, my brothers, according to the flesh, have chosen the former. And Moses describes it this way, the righteous describes in this way the righteousness of, of following Torah. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that's by faith says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep to bring him up. But what does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. And here is that word, Paul says, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and he richly blesses all who call on him. Jew, Gentile, fat, skinny, Male, female, ugly, not ugly, sort of ugly. He richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And so here we go at the beginning of chapter 11. I ask then, Paul says, did God reject his people? No, no. I mean, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Obviously, if he rejected all of his people, I wouldn't be here. But I've got a bigger point to make, Paul says. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. I mean, remember what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah. He appealed to God against Israel. And what did God say? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And so, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, then it can't be by works, can it? If it were, grace wouldn't be grace. But I said it was grace. So what then? What, did, did Israel fail to obtain what it had sought so earnestly? The elect obtained it, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they can't see and their backs be bent forever. Let me ask again, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No. No, not at all. But because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Partly because it's awesome for salvation to come to the Gentiles. But also why, Paul says? Here is God's clever strategy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. If their transgression means riches for the world, their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now, I'm talking to you Gentiles, Paul says, and as much as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry and hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, my brothers according to the flesh, my fellow Israelites, the Jews. I want to provoke them to envy and so save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root's holy, so are the branches. Well, if some of the branches have been broken off, and if you, the wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and you now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, which we saw last week is probably the patriarchs. If the olive tree is Israel and the root is the patriarchs, you get to share in being the descendants of Abraham by being grafted in. And if you share the nourishing sap from the olive root, don't boast over those branches that were cut off. I mean, if, if you do, keep this in mind. The root's not there because of you. The root's not getting help from you. You're not doing the root any favors by showing up. It's the root that supports you. Well, you may say, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Fine, whatever. But why were they broken off? 
They're broken off because of unbelief. You stand by faith. So don't be arrogant. Don't be afraid. For if God didn't spare those natural branches, what makes you think he's going to spare you either? So consider, therefore, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Here's what's exciting. If they don't persist in unbelief, then they can be grafted back in. I mean, God's able to do that, right? You're going to hold, say God can't do that? God can graft them right back in. I mean, look, if after all, you were cut off out of an olive, wild olive tree and grafted into a natural one, how much more readily will these, the ones who naturally come from that cultivated olive tree, be grafted right back in to their own olive tree? And so he says in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full numbers of the Gentiles has come in. And this is the way in which all Israel will be saved. It is the bringing in of the Gentiles with the faithful remnant of the Jews, the establishing of this mixed-up olive tree made of natural and unnatural branches, wild and cultivated, that God is accomplishing. And this, Paul says, is what it looks like for all Israel, all of God's people, to be saved and note this in verse 25 when he's addressing them. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Why would Paul say, I don't want you to be ignorant? They probably had a bunch of ignorant people. But he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. Use that same word. Beginning of chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God. Brothers, you look in Acts all these sermons that are preached. When somebody starts off one of these sermons and he says, Brothers, who's he addressing? He's addressing his fellow Israelites. This is how a Jew would address his fellow Jews. And so Paul here is addressing this church in Rome. It's not just his fellow Jews. He is addressing Jews and Gentiles alike as his brothers, as N.T. Wright put it, and I'll just say once again this quote. Let me share this with you that we had last week. Paul is talking about, in regard to this olive tree, he's talking about the ancient people of God now radically reconfigured around the Messiah. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which he wrote a few years later, he says in chapter 2, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth 
and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is something done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He was made the two-one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile alike, have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. You're now fellow citizens with God's people. You're in the family. You're members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Holy temple, single household, one tree. These are the kind of pictures that Paul gives us of what God is doing in and through Christ. He's building up one holy people, diverse, all kinds of different types of people, all different nationalities, both Jew and Gentile, but they're all being built together into one church. This is what God is doing. There's no indication anywhere that God is providing any alternative paths. There's no sense that he's got sort of this separate grove over here. If you don't like the single olive tree bit, you can do your thing. It doesn't say that God has a little side chapel. If you don't like the holy temple being built up to the Lord, you can just do that. God has a one household. You don't like that? I don't think he's giving you another choice. And the only way you get to be part of that household, the only way you get to be grafted into the tree, the only way you become part of this holy temple being built up to the Lord is by his grace. If you're a branch, you can't graft yourself into a tree. Somebody's got to graft you in. It's God who does these things. God is just. God is available. And he is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his promises in the way he chooses to be faithful to his promises. And the way that we can be the beneficiaries of his faithfulness is quite simply by faith. 
by trusting him, by receiving the grace that he pours out on us so abundantly. There's nothing we can do. There's no way we can impress him. And that's true for Jew and Gentile alike. Paul is building together one man out of the two. God is doing that. And Paul is testifying to that. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the unity of your church, of the body of Christ. We thank you for the fact that you have called all of us from all of our different backgrounds, all of our different abilities, and you're building us together into one holy temple that rises to glorify you. We thank you that you've welcomed all of us, including those who would think ourselves unwelcome. That you've welcomed all of us into your household. You've taken those of us nobody would have wanted. You've adopted them as your children. What a marvelous thing you're doing. We thank you for the privilege we have of being part of this work of cosmic reconciliation. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.